Someone handed me in the, in the break a little note. Some weeks ago, on a Sunday morning, I woke feeling quite depressed. I went and had a bath and the Lord broke through and said, You think that you are only important to me when you're doing something, but you are important to me all the time. All the time. I thought you might like to hear that. <laughs> the depression broke instantly. A word from him and we're okay, aren't we? I always say to him when I'm up against it, Lord, just one word from you and I'm all, I'll be all right. I don't, it tell me off, whatever it is, but I've got to have that word from you. And it has to be personal, because when it's personal, then it hits the place it's meant to go and does what it's meant to do. And uh, sometimes it's not, it's not much. You know, it's not, it's not a great long screed of stuff, it's one word. Yeah. I know that recently I was having a spot of bother over something and I was praying like mad and the Lord was saying, I love you. And I'm saying, yeah, 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 I know that, but so, 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 so. <laughs> I love you. Yeah, 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 but I've got this problem. I love you. And I, okay. <laughs> okay. Right, so all of what we've seen in that first part was the submission to God. Because that is so important, nothing else will, will come if we don't do that, as I say. So now, just briefly looking at submission to Christ. Seeking after God then isn't an intellectual pursuit or exercise. It's first and foremost a matter of the heart and the will. And then the mind is informed and transformed by the knowledge of him. We experience him. It's right that I should use my mind, or more correctly, I should allow the Holy Spirit to inform it, but my pursuit should be in this order. Heart first. Otherwise, I find I have an intellectual understanding of the whole process, of redemption, which is logical, it involves my mind, but without an experiential knowledge of God and his grace. He can only work within me according to the measure of my surrender. My heart must be allowed to engage with him first. A rabbi was once asked, what has God been doing for the last 6,000 years? The answer he gave was seeking a bride for his son. God has been making matches since the Garden of Eden. He started in Genesis, providing a woman for the man he created. He ends in Revelation, providing a bride for his son. Between Genesis and Revelation, we have his plan for mankind revealed. A bride for his son, who will reign with him. She will not reign alone. She will reign in adoring partnership with him. One of the puppets that one of my trustees has got is a king and a queen. I'm thinking, I'd like to get my fingers on those two. Christianity is a love affair. It's an affair of the heart. Unless yours is a heartfelt relationship with Jesus as your Lord and your bridegroom, the Father and the Holy Spirit, you'll struggle with submission to Christ all your life. Augustine said some four or five hundred years ago, Sometimes when you're working within me, you bring my scattered self to you. You draw me into a state of feeling that is unlike anything I'm used to, a kind of sweet delight. That's the sweet language of experience. And that language, language is, Thou God seest me. So said a great prophet of the 20th century, A.W. Tozer. 
and he was referring to Hagar in Genesis 16:13. Then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have also seen here him who sees me. He goes on to say, sin has twisted our vision inward and made us self-regarding. Unbelief has put self where God should be and is perilously close to rebellion against the Creator in the same way as Lucifer who expressed it in his I will statements. When we lift our inward eyes to gaze on God, we are sure to meet friendly eyes gazing back at us. Isn't that lovely? You will never see him looking daggers at you. If you see something looking daggers at you, it's not God. It is not. He also commented, the whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith now may be exercised without a jar to the moral life and without embarrassment to the Adamic ego. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved, but he isn't hungry or thirsty after God. In fact, he is specifically taught to be satisfied and is in fact encouraged to be content with little. That's an extract from a book called The Pursuit of God. And I would ask you, is that your experience, neither hungering nor thirsting for more of God and content with little, or maybe struggling all the time to know him? Another modern-day prophet, Graham Cook, says the Western Church must learn to meditate, setting time aside to think deeply about God. And that's an extract from his book, The Language of Promise, page 28. I started with the statement, what you think about God is the single most important thing in your life. You may be asking yourself at this point, what has this got to do with biblical submission? The answer to that is, you cannot, and quite rightly so, submit yourself to someone you do not know. You will not be able to trust them. Knowing God is essential to trusting him, which is essential to submitting to him and obeying him. So my question is, there comes another one, do you know him? Who is he to you today? It's okay, whoever he is to you, wherever you are, it's fine. You've got to be honest with yourself and with him where you're at. If if you're saying to him, Lord, I'm scared stiff, I want to hide every time I hear your name, tell him. Because he knows already what you're doing is actually bringing recognition to yourself of where you actually are, not where you wish you were. Because you'll be living in some sort of fairyland if you're pretending to be something with him that you're not. He knows it. I've sat up in bed before now and got all proper with him at night time before I've gone to bed and he said, you know, you don't want to be like that for? I said, I know, I'm a bit pony-faced, did I? I said, oh dear father, I know. I don't like you talking to me like that. I like it normal. Another question. Do you think you could do with a complete overhaul in the way you see the Father, Jesus and the Holy Spirit and their perceived demands on you? Do you need, as dear Joyce Mayer would say, a check-up from the neck-up? I love that expression. 
If so, I would urge you to read some of the old saints. A.W. Tozer, Andrew Murray, John of the Cross, Madame Guillon, Teresa of Avila, Nicholas of Cusa. These people knew him. They had an intimate relationship with the Almighty. Study some of the old hymn books. Look at the way God is extolled. This comes out of an experiential knowledge of him, not a head knowledge. When we got saved, we didn't invite Jesus into our heads. <laughs> Graham Cook says, God says, thank God. <laughs> what marks these people and the old hymns out is that they are God-centred, not man-centred. They knew him. And we're living in an age where Christianity is very self-absorbed. What's in it for me? What can I get out of God? Those of you who attend the Wednesday Bible study meeting are beginning to see what self-regarding, self-referential, self-absorbed, self-centred love is like and how it manifests itself in our everyday life. Contrast this with what was said by a man called Fred Frederick Faber. Wherever we turn in the Church of God, there is Jesus. He is the beginning, the middle and end of everything to us. There's nothing good, nothing holy, nothing beautiful, nothing joyous, which he is not to his servants. No one need be poor, because if he chooses, he can have Jesus for his own property and possession. No one need be downcast, for Jesus is the joy of heaven, and it's his joy to enter sorrowful hearts. We can exaggerate about many things, but we can never exaggerate about our application to Jesus or the compassionate abundance of the love of Jesus to us. All our lives long we might talk of Jesus, and yet we should never come to an end of the sweet things that might be said of him. Eternity will not be long enough to learn all he is, or to praise him for all he has done, but then that matters not, for we should always be with him, and we desire nothing more. Graham Cook on something I was listening to the other night, said he, uh, there was a time in his life uh, when, just recently, when he was really feeling terribly despondent and black. And he said the Holy Spirit came in, sat down and said, want to hear some Pharisee jokes? <laughs> and Graham said, it's not quite the right time. I feel very down. Want to hear some Pharisee jokes? So he starts telling me his favourite Pharisee joke. Before he knew where he was, actually, creased up. He said, God just had this way of coming in and saying the most unexpected thing to you. Well, there's some Pharisee jokes. There was something else, and I can't remember the other thing that just came to me just then. If you think he's all serious and he's the, he the most light hearted, benevolent, understanding, gracious person I have ever met in my life. What did he say to Elijah? What are you doing there, Elijah? What's up with you? <laughs> Elijah's hightailed it out of there because of Jezebel. Oh, I'm the only one left. Get her off. I've saved 7,000 for myself. <laughs> and what was the story he said? The Gideon in the wine press. Was it Gideon in the wine press, Joyce? What was that story? He said, what an excuse. The bloke kept. No. The calf. That was it. Was Aaron? It was the Aaron the calf. And he said, "Do you want it? This was it. Do you want to hear the best story? The best 
the best story we love in the Bible that never fails, but the best joke. Moses coming down with the tablets, you know, and Aaron there with this calf standing there trying to hide it. <laughs> and he said, Moses says, what's that? He said, he said, Moses was absolutely livid. He said, he was absolutely furious. This is the Holy Spirit talking now. Absolutely furious. He said, and there's Aaron standing there trying to hide this thing. And said, I threw the gold in the fire and it came out like this. He said, who's going to believe that? Killing themselves laughing. Every time I said, we come to that bit, angels rolling around the floor laughing. Wings wrapped around them. Just laying there. <laughs> oh dear. So what? I, what I suppose I'm saying is, it's not heavy. He's not heavy. He's my brother. He's my bridegroom. He's my father. He's just everything. And Frederick Faber again writing a hymn to him. That's an H Y M N to H I M. English language. I love thee. So I know not how my transports to control. My, thy love is like a burning fire within my very soul. And of the Holy Spirit he writes, O Spirit beautiful and dread, my heart is fit to break with the love of all thy tenderness for us poor sinners' sake. So when Jesus says in John 14 and verses 15, 21, 23 and 24, If you love me, you will obey or keep my commandments. He was seeking the submission which is an attitude of heart. And between verses 15 and 24 he says this three times. If and those of you who have heard Roger Price's teaching will know that's an if, perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. You will keep my commandments, Jesus said in John 15:10. If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And he links it again, obedience and abiding. I've risked the tedium of quotation so you might understand what I've set out to say, that Jesus is so wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful, that he can, without help from any other than himself, satisfy your deepest longings and meet and overflow the deepest demands of your human nature. He is irresistible. So the question arises, what hinders us? What hinders us from abandonment to him? What hinders us from surrender and submission to this great God we say we serve? There is within us something that will not let go of what it perceives as its own. A fibrous root of fallen life which seeks to possess, acquire and control. It covets with a deep and fierce passion that which it considers mine. Jesus calls it the self-life. Its chief characteristic is its possessiveness. To allow this enemy to live is in the end to lose everything. We seek to protect that which is mine, be it things, people, possessions, whatever. But the blessedness comes in possessing nothing. We really do need to understand God's ways with us. When he asks us for something, it is not to deprive but to set us free. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whoever shall lose his life for my sake shall save it. That's Matthew 16, 24 and 25. And this doesn't compute with us. He's saying, 
Take up your cross because I want to set you free from self-preservation. The moment you move from self-preservation to self-denial, you move from Satan's kingdom to God's, from darkness to light. The flesh is all about self-gratification and self-protection and it's an easy target for Satan. Jesus wants to bring you to the place where you are no longer meat for Satan. No longer lunch is served and barrel is on the menu. He wants to set us free from ourselves. The enemy cannot predict what you're going to do if you're not controlled by extreme self-interest. If you are controlled by self-interest, you are an easy target. He knows exactly what you're going to do because he placed that fallen nature within you. It's self-interest that hinders us from abandonment to him. Nothing more, nothing less. The giant self. There is actually nothing, no such thing as an unsurrendered heart. Your heart is always surrendered to something. So it would be a good idea if you're finding it difficult to surrender to the Lord that you say, okay, Father, what is my heart surrendered to then? When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's speaking of those who've rooted their hearts, all sense of possessing anything but him. They are the poor in spirit, so theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I am your inheritance and you are mine. Have a think about that for a moment. All I have is yours and you, well, you're mine. The Levites, you know, they possess nothing. They, they owned nothing, no land, no nothing, because God was their portion. And we're all priests. He's their portion. So the law of re-relating. An illustration of this can be found in the famous passage in the Old Testament of Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac. This much longed for child was born when Abraham was very old. Old enough, in fact, to be Isaac's grandfather. The child was the delight of his old heart, but for some reason, God asked this peculiar treasure of him. Abraham, go up and sacrifice your son there. God let him go through this thing until the knife was raised over the boy's throat. Abraham was willing. This boy was about 11 or 12. He wasn't a little one. He wasn't playing about. You can't fool God by pretending to put something on the altar. At the 11th hour, 59th minute, 59th second, God stops him and says, It's all right, Abraham. I just wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart so that I might reign supreme there. I wanted to correct the perversion in your love for him. Now you can have him back. We can have the thing back when it no longer holds us. It doesn't possess us. We relate to it differently. After this, Abraham was a man wholly surrendered, utterly obedient, and God makes him a huge promise. I will bless you and multiply you as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. The blessedness of possessing nothing. When you give something to God, he always multiplies it. Isaac was the seed that God had to have back in order that he might plant him and make a nation. God always multiplies that which is placed into his hands. In giving up that which he loved most, Abraham gained. He got his son back and a dynasty. He can never outgive God. 
We're often hindered from giving up our treasures, whatever form they take, out of fear for their safety. In extreme cases, this is self-protection gone mad. We cannot trust our very lives to the one who saved our life for eternity. And we live in panic and anxiety, covering every base, in case God isn't going to come through for us in the way we want. Silly children, we need to have no such fear. Jesus came to save, not destroy. Everything we commit to him is safe, and nothing is really safe that isn't committed to him. Submission is only a struggle if we're seeking to hold on to something. So what should we do if we find that we've been holding on to things, people, our very own life? Don't try to defend yourself or justify your position, just confess it to the Lord. I've been my own saviour, Lord. I've operated in self-protection, not trusting you. I haven't let go of anything. Show me the things I've protected in my own way. I give you permission to take them out of my heart forever. Just one word of caution. Don't give them up expecting you'll get them back because that's holding your breath to avoid dying and hoping you'll hold it long enough. <laughs> Let them go completely. God will honour this. And I have a prayer here, and you can say it in your hearts if you want to. Father, I want to know you, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inner bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished for so long, and which have become a very part of my living self, so that you may enter and dwell there without rival. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you've given yourself to Jesus in this way, you've just submitted to his lordship in your life, and you've just given him permission to help himself to you. So now, quickly, wives, submit to your husbands, children, be obedient to parents. By this time you will be understanding that love is a choice. Submission is a choice. Unless we know the one to whom we submit and how safe he is, though he's not predictable, we'll get stuck in a place of fear. A paralysis of analysis, if you like. And when the Bible tells us to submit to one another, we have extreme difficulty doing this because we haven't submitted or got in rank to the highest authority. <coughs> God himself. So, wives submit to your husbands. This is usually the big one for the ladies who are married. I did cover this on the, the teaching in the role of women in society and in the home and church last month, but for the sake of completeness, I'll just do a brief resume. If you really want a full exposition on it, get the CDs or the notes that are on the table here. So just quickly. Man and woman were given the same mandate and they were created equal. They were both created with power, authority and dignity to reflect God's image. Woman was created as a helper, a helpmeet or a help suitable to assist the man in the fulfilling of the mandate. The word help in Hebrew is the word ezer, E-Z-E-R, which equals partner. And it's a word that's used 17 times in the Old Testament. Thirteen times in direct reference to God himself. Isa, a help, 
help that comes from someone stronger than yourself or an ally. So God brought a source of strength and an ally to Adam to support him and walk alongside him. The corresponding Greek word is the word parakletos, which we know the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit. So God's desire when he prepared woman was to have someone who would come alongside to give strength and wisdom to the man. As I said, in the New Testament the Holy Spirit comes alongside and gives us strength and wisdom. Reflecting the Trinity, the woman was created by God to be a similar help to the man. So woman is equal in rank to man and a helper for him. God planned for a perfect man and a perfect woman to found a perfect race and inhabit the earth. In this plan, there was no suggestion of one ruling or having dominion over the other. Stop waving your flag, girls. They would both have a perfect relationship with God and they would both perfectly fulfil their complementary roles. They were created as spiritual beings to have a relationship with God, but they were also created to have an earth life. A life on earth and a life in God were at this stage in no way incompatible. In other words, there was no division between the natural and the spiritual. The division came when sin came into the garden. Prior to the fall, they had their own individual spiritual lives and their lives in relation to each other, so they've got the two, horizontal and vertical. And then comes the fall. And that which was going to be a delight, being fruitful and multiplying, is now going to be painful. And the last verse of Genesis 3.16 says, Adam will rule over Eve. And many people have taken this to be a pattern of what the male-female relationship is meant to be. But this is actually the curse of God on the now corrupted nature. It's not a pattern which God has given for relationships between men and women. What started out as an open, intimate relationship has now been twisted, distorted, skewed, bent and corrupted. The meaning of iniquity. Adam sinned. Adam is going to bring forth from the earth by the sweat of his brow. He didn't sweat before, it was easy. And Eve is going to have pain and travail in childbirth. She wouldn't have experienced pain before, but now she will. The very thing God has said to them about being fruitful and multiplying will become a source of toil, pain and difficulty. For the woman now, her desire will be for her husband, but he will have rule over her. What's God saying here? He's saying what you want from your mate is a close, intimate relationship, but what you will get is a master. What you desire is a lover, but because of the corrupting influence of the fall on Adam, what you will get is a lord, someone who will not understand you and will tend towards dominion of you. When we become Christians, everything changes again, or it should do. Jesus is the second Adam and in him everything is restored to its original order. So now we see the model of what headship really means. He took a towel and girded himself and began to wash the disciples' feet. That's John 13, 4 and 5. The headship of the man over the woman now is to be like that of Jesus. The man loving his wife as Christ loves the church. A headship of loving and caring and serving. The order has changed. Woman is no longer to be ruled over or dominated by man. That is the new order of things in Christ. For the man to be the head of the wife means to lift her up, to give her precedence over himself. Expressed by a sage to the man, 
below your means for yourself and above your means for your wife. That is headship. Most men like the title of head of the family but they don't like the job description. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is an incredibly tough task. The woman's role is easy compared to this. Wives, submit your husbands, lovingly allowing the last word. Voluntarily adapt yourself in love to your husband out of reverence to Christ. The whole thing revolves around your relationship first to God and under him you submit to your husband. Your ultimate loyalty is always to God. He is to be the first. We cannot come to him through someone else. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Everything is now from our position in Christ. Marriage is a theocracy. Man is the head. Jesus is the king. Headship is vested in the man because his is the greater responsibility before God and under Jesus even as Jesus is under God the Father. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. What we have here is a line of authority. It's not to do with equality, because Christ is co-equal with God. This is expressing Jesus' voluntary submission to the Father in all things, and likewise, the wife's submission to the husband. Children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. Ephesians 6 1. This doesn't need any further explanation, I think. Easier said than done, though. And submission to governing authorities. And the scripture for this we've already seen that every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what's good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. But because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honour to whom honour. Again this hardly needs any exposition. It's clear that we as Bible believing Christians should be the first to obey those who have the rule over us. The government whether we agree with it or not. Because it's placed there by God himself. Again you see the principle, submit to God, and submitting to everything else will fall into line. Don't fiddle your taxes, don't knowingly break the speed limit. Don't pass your parking ticket onto someone else because they've got an hour left, you've got an hour left on it. Don't do pirate copies of things that have a copyright on them. On and on it goes. Just because everyone else does it is not the criteria. So these are basic examples. We should be living examples of law abiders, not law breakers. And just Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, and I think that's on your sheet too, says that we should pray for those who have the rule over us. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. 
For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. We can't get around that one. And finally, submission to leadership in the church. I can say little here because it is a real realm where I fear to tread because I can be so easily misunderstood whatever I say. But I would commend you, some of you have already uh, used it and read it, the book and study guide entitled Experiencing God, Knowing and Doing the Will of God by Henry Blackaby and published by Lifeway Press. And this describes a body of people committed to each other, moving in unity and unison, because they're all hearing from God themselves, and they don't move until they're all in agreement about what God is saying. So obey those who have the rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Things just ain't what they used to be. Times, oh, they are a-changing and heaven is pressing down. God's amongst his people. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it very much. God bless. Thank you. In this new parade, as I said, I started, God just gave me a quick revelation following the, just before the last baton meeting and I sort of stumbled through it in the afternoon of the last meeting. Good job there weren't many here. Because <laughs> I really hadn't quite got the grasp of what he was talking about. What he was talking about was insurance policies. You know, sometimes you get new for old. Um, so I want to talk to you this afternoon about what it means to have life. The life of Jesus within and what changes that should bring about as far as our daily lives are concerned. New for old as a reality. As Roger Price would put it, know what you know, believe what you believe and live in the good of it. And this probably comes into the category of a word of exhortation, so fasten your seatbelts. We're going to move this afternoon from one place to another. We should be living our lives in truth and life, but so many of us, it seems, settle for business as usual. As though nothing of particular note happened to us when we were born again. Or if it did at first, it somehow got tarnished and samey and nothing marks out our existence from anyone else. Our struggles seem, if anything, harder than unbelievers most of the time. And sometimes it's a sin-confess-sin cycle, never seeming to get into the place of freedom and victory and never knowing who you are, walking in the grace and favour of God, and that sin is dealt with. Beloved, there's another place to live. So prepare to move your feet because when the Holy Spirit treads on your toes, the only thing to do is move your feet. It's called repentance. Have another thought. And the Holy Spirit's job is to make you get it. To get it until it radically changes you. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you speak. It changes the way you conduct yourself. It changes the way you stand before God. It changes everything about you. Uh, some of you have heard Dr. Samuel Lockyer. You can't get it out of your head, you can't get it out of your hands, you can't get it out of your heart, you can't get him off of you. <laughs> you know, he just keeps going on, doesn't he? And we've got to get this or die trying, really. I mean, I should just keep going or die trying. I'm probably, as they lay, lay me in the coffin, I'll be still trying. 
to get it through to other people, I mean. I've got it and I'm trying to get it through to somebody else. I feel like Basil Fawlty a lot of the time. Will you try to understand before one of us does? <laughs> I am his beloved son. Gender is not in this. You are God's beloved in whom he is well pleased. He isn't going to be well pleased when you get it right, as the note indicated this morning. Whatever right is, let me say. He's pleased now. He hasn't finished with you, but he's pleased with you as he works the character and nature of Christ into you. And the Lord will always tell you the truth about how he sees you. Jesus is the truth. The truth is a person that is he who will set you free from all the things that you are not. So whatever is your particular issue about yourself this afternoon, Jesus is the answer. He looks at you and says, you are my beloved. You are worth what I paid for you. That's the glory of being in Christ. How difficult would it be for you to turn to the next person, the person next to you and say, I'm worth what Jesus paid for me. Would some of you struggle with actually saying that? Let's have a go. Turn to the person next door and say, I am worth what he paid for me. And he managed it. Yeah. Something inside sort of screws up a bit though, doesn't it really? When you're trying to say it. That's it. You know, it, it's so hard to get so to understand. When I first heard this, is Graham Cook's teaching that he said, "I'm worth what he paid me." I thought I don't think I could say that, but I started trying because I was out of agreement with what God thinks. So I came into agreement, and that is the glory of being in Christ. Mercy and truth, righteousness and peace have kissed each other in your life and mine in the person of Jesus. Father doesn't beat us up with the truth. He extends the truth in mercy so you can be adjusted by it and discover his nature towards you as part of the lesson. Remember what I said this morning, what you think about God is the single most important thing in the world. There is nothing more important than that. So again, who is he to you? What you think about him is everything because it will drive everything in your life. Your opinion of God is the most important thing in the universe. It's the biggest question you'll ever answer in your life. The disciples, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And he, they gave him a variety of distorted answers. And then he said, but who do you say I am? And he would ask you the same thing. Who am I to you? What distortion do you have on your view of God and who he wants to be for you this afternoon? What mid-course corrections would you have to make to bring yourself into line with the truth? I am the beloved of God. Who is he for you? Who do you say I am? Because on that revelation of him in your heart, he will build church through you. The church is built on an individual and collective revelation of who God really, really is. And if we don't get it, the world isn't going to get it either. If we don't know what it is to live in the much more care of God, under his smile every day, what are we offering them? 
The way we live is profoundly shaped by our picture of God. And God has a fixed and determined love in his heart towards you. It's called covenantal love. We might look at covenants because it's a thing we know nothing of in this country. He's faithful. It's a love that guards and keeps and watches over. It's covenantal. God's affection for us is what makes the covenant. It's fixed, beloved. He will never change the way he feels towards you. And blood was always involved in a covenant. The blood of Jesus is what affects this covenant. He was the lame, lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. God himself will provide the lamb, Abraham said, looking forward to Christ. Christ is the covenant maker. The covenantal agreement is between the Father and Son. It's not between you and God. Jesus is the covenant maker and with the Holy Spirit he is the covenant keeper and we are partakers of that covenant. Hebrews 7.22 says Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus himself is the guarantee of the covenant that you have with the Father. You are a partaker, and a partaker as a bit, as I understand it. You are not a party to it. The Father and the Son made a covenant together to deal with sin, to make a way, and the Father kept his promise by putting you into Jesus. So he put you into the one place where his covenant with you would always be kept, would always be fixed and ratified, and never changed. That's why Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me, because I am the guarantee of a better covenant. I am the means of access. I am the gate. I am the door. He's delighted with the covenant. You can always come to him because of the covenant, because he made that covenant with the Father and not with you. So Jesus makes and keeps it on our behalf. Why? Because we could no more keep the covenant than Abraham could. When God was making a covenant there in Genesis, he put Abraham to sleep. Do you remember he put him to sleep while he did it? We can only participate in what God has already done for us. It's all his work. It's finished. Ours is to enter in. What a saviour. We enter the covenant as partakers of his grace. We are the joyful recipients of his faithfulness. No matter where we go or what we do, he will remain faithful. He will cultivate us out of our sin into a place of righteousness and holiness. It is not possible to escape the love of God. This is not about performance. It's not about reading the Bible. It's not about witnessing and it's not about trying. It's about what he has done. And what he has done is staggeringly brilliant. It's called uncommon love. We cannot grasp that God will give us something for nothing. In church we have a mindset that says you are saved by grace and then you work at it. And whether we like it or not we pick it up. It's not the truth. The way you were saved is the way you go on. It's all grace. It's all him. It's absolutely amazing. Astounding and astonishing. It's all his work and we freely partake of the finished work. We're part of the company of the redeemed. We've gone from darkness and death into life and peace. We've received life in the Son. 
to live in a world that has the principle of death in it we live it sorry we live in a world that has the principle of death in it of work in it every thing man touches turns to death along the way somewhere because fallen mankind's spirit no longer receives light and life it's cut off from the life of God and death is at work this isn't our portion we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light we are citizens of another kingdom this world is not our home we are strangers and aliens in it we are not meant to fit we are meant to be salt and light shining and brilliant with the glory of God being manifested through us more and more every day I believe that the truth is the best kept secret in the church the truth beloved is that you are the beloved of God plus nothing you can't earn it you can't work for it you can only receive it it's a gift what mindset change would it take for you to live in the magnificence of this revelation every day to know God's goodness faithfulness and love freely available surrounding you all day every day living in the good of it Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life we've invited Jesus into our hearts that's the way so we should have the truth and the life what seems to have happened is that some of us have the truth and no life some of us have life and no truth it's probably marginally more dangerous to have life and no truth because before long you will go wrong and get into deception other one is a tragedy to have truth and no life it's like uh, this is the, the, the logos word of God but you know someone can a theologian can give you the A to Z of this but you can blow the dust off because it's so boring but you get the Holy Spirit then you get the rhema the spoken or the now word you blow the dust off of one and life is in the other you have to have all three the way, Jesus, the truth, Jesus, and the life of Jesus living in us. And God's anointing his truth in these days and people are speaking with power and authority, life and truth. Because you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. And the truth, beloved, is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. We need a fresh revelation of what it means now that we are made alive in Christ. Have a look round next time you're in church. What do you see? Life or boredom and defeat? This is what we always do on a Sunday. Should have put those potatoes in. wonder what's for lunch. I hope he doesn't go on too long. We live in the mentality of defeat and boredom, unaware of what happened the moment we were born again into the family of God. Christianity is what we do on a Sunday. We have become, perish the thought, religious, if not downright pharisaical. This is the work of the adversary. He's robbed us both of the truth and the life which is ours in Jesus. He didn't think he was going to leave you alone now that you've changed sides, did you? If he couldn't stop you becoming a Christian, he's surely going to prevent you growing and being passionate about Jesus. He's going to do his best to ensure that you only get half-truths, because if you ever get the truth, he'd better watch out. The three most powerful words next to God loves you is, are, it is finished. 
John 19.30. I was reading a book yesterday and they were trying to make an explanation of why Jesus died so quickly. And I thought, he died because he said, I'm giving my life up. He gave it up when it was time, when it was finished. He didn't hang about. Once the job was done, he said, it is finished and went. And I thought, it's amazing. There was all this trying to substantiate how it was, he, you know, he should, he should have hung there an awful lot longer and all this and that and the other, gone into all sorts of stuff. And I thought, no, the scriptures clearly say, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Bit of logos in there, a little bit of doing it about what it exactly looks as though it says, without the rhema of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, permission is granted to live in the finished work of the cross. Most Christians don't live from the finished work. They're somehow trying to work their way towards the cross. They struggle with the words need and try, and they're living on the wrong side of the cross. Paul says he glories in the cross because it's the power of God to salvation. He knew he was the righteousness of God in Christ. The cross transforms us. We live in the power of the finished work of the cross. We don't live in the past, we live in the now of God. God is the I am, not the I was. He was also the I will be. And we'll get to see the prophetic side shortly. I just want to do something that um, I find this quite helpful. When you were born again, you had righteousness. This is, this is the old you here. Righteousness was imputed to you. Jesus took all your um, sin and your deficit and he didn't just leave you with an empty bank account, he clothed you with the robe of righteousness, that is imputed righteousness. And then the journey begins to impart that righteousness and the imparting of the righteousness is working in the nature of Christ so that what was on the outside becomes that which is on the inside. So when I prayed for the lady this morning and she's all down the tubes about, I can't remember what it was, the glory of God was pouring out of her because the righteousness of God is being imparted to her day by day and it's flowing out of her though she can't see it. The, the problem is with us, we go by what we can see. We use our natural eyes. You get into ministry a little while and you just have to forget what you can see with your natural eyes. You just have to go for bigger than you ever dreamt possible and see God give you bigger than that. It's, br it's absolutely brilliant place to live. You can expect the unexpected all the time. Jesus is not fixated on your sin. He's dealt with it. He is fixated on life and all that you can become. God imputed that righteousness, as I've just shown you, to you the moment you believed. And the Holy Spirit continually imparts it to you as you yield to the new life within you. It's brilliant. Grace of God and the robe of righteousness and that's enough. The divine life within us, we looked at it didn't we? in Peter, his divine power, has given us. That seed is in you, it's imperishable, it's good news, it's new life, new start, new creation. And most of us live not in the power, but in the power cut mentality. I love this story. Roger Price tells the story of how during the 1970s, when the miners were on strike, uh, frequently the power would go off. 
sometimes for days at a time. And this particular time they sat uh, round their candles for three days until they saw lights in the houses next door and realised that the meter had run out. <laughs> and aren't we like this? We have a power cut mentality sitting there waiting for someone to put money in the meter when the power is already there. We just have to do something about it. Until we were born again, we were in a permanent power cut. I couldn't think any other way than the way I did. I couldn't choose anything other than the way I chose, and it was pleased me all the way there. As soon as I was born again, I saw that I had a choice. It was my revelation I could choose to please myself or choose to please God. Suddenly, there were two wills at work, not just one. There'd been an exchange. I found that my body was designed to contain life and all that pertained to life. Genesis 1.28 Blessing, fruitfulness, multiplication, fullness, dominion, more than restored to the original, I was seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What an inheritance. I discovered I was made alive. I was born from above. God had given me life. God had given me all I needed for a life of godliness. I found I could reign now in this life. Death reigned out there, but I could reign in here. All I had to do was make the choice. Christian life is not hard, it's impossible. You cannot do this thing. That is why God sent his Holy Spirit to indwell you and make the impossible possible. The entire ability of the Godhead is within you, bodily. It dwells in me, it dwells in you, as it did in Jesus. Everything is yours, Paul says. God's done it all. He is not going to do any more. It is finished. And he didn't need any help from you. Our greatest fear should be that we have an ordinary life. We have to learn to live in the impossibility of the divine nature obtained through the cross new for old there's an exchange taking place the cross is freedom permission to live in newness Romans 6 2 says we're dead new for old Romans 6 3 baptized into his death this is the reality if you're living below this Satan has used lies demoralization and defeat on you that's his only weapon did God really say? Did he really give you permission to live a life less ordinary? And the answer is a resounding yes. And I get to kick his butt from time to time. Jesus used Satan's own weapon, death, against him when he won the victory on Calvary. Death could not hold him. We can now all be plugged into the power source again. When you're born again, the power of God starts rushing into you like putting your fingers in a socket. 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. That's the good news. The moment you believe you are joined to the Lord in your human spirit and the Holy Spirit fuses with your spirit and they're forged together. And the Holy Spirit and your human spirit are moving as one entity. It does take a little while for your soul to catch up with this bit of information and it doesn't give up its right of rule easily. It must be dethroned to allow the spirit to take benevolent control. Choice is paramount. 
This is life-changing stuff. If you hadn't realised it before, get away with God and ask him to show you. If you've never had a revelation of the exchange that took place on the cross, get away and ask God for it. Because, beloved, you'll stay right where you are until you have your own personal revelation of what happened there. Jesus didn't only take away your sin and give you forgiveness. He took away your sin nature, the propensity to sin. And that is why Paul says, Reckon yourselves dead therefore to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6.11. There's a reckoning that has to take place, and it takes place by choosing to live in what Jesus died to give you. You have everything you need. It came as a package deal. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is dynamic because it means there's plenty of life available to change you and to change the things about your life. Jesus says some amazing things about this in John 4.10. You remember the woman of Samaria, or as uh, Steve Hebden used to say, the woman of Samaria. I like that. Like odious and so touchy, you to see her as something touchy. He says to her, if you knew, if you knew, if you knew the gift, who you're asking, ask and he will give you water so that you will never thirst again. He's talking of the Holy Spirit here, living water, fresh, bubbling water. It was pretty rare out there because it was usually brackish, so when they spoke of living water, they meant clear, pure sparkling water. The concept was of abundance. If you're thirsty today, it's not because the supply isn't there. There's another reason. And the answer lies with you. In John 7, 38 and 39, Jesus makes a similar claim. And this isn't the baptism in the Spirit. This is the rebirth. He's saying this on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a, a tragedy here. While these religious Jews were pouring out the water and, and quoting the scriptures, Ho, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters and drink, and therefore with joy will I draw water from the well of salvation, no one was getting saved. They were just having a religious good time. They did it every year. Oh, I do love this festival, Gert, don't you? Yes, the best time of the year, dear, and I like that tea that we have afterwards as well. I look forward to it every year. So Jesus stands up and cries out, Come to me! He's had enough. He's going to mess up this nice religious festival. That's why unbelieving religious people hate him so much. He's always wanting to mess up their festivals. He's had enough. And he stands and shouts, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was saying, You've got all religious about this and you haven't got any water. Salvation is being talked about. Jesus is a spring of water. All my fresh springs, it says in the Psalms, are in you. Out of his belly, that's the seat of the emotions, out of the emotions, out of their soul, will come rivers. That's a promise. The Holy Spirit is the source, and life pours out. And Jesus is the one that gives the life. In 1 Corinthians 15.45 we see the first Adam was a living soul and the last Adam a quickening spirit. There's a comparison here between the first Adam and Jesus. Jesus and Adam were the only two who were sinless and perfect. Living soul versus quickening spirit. Jesus is a fountain of life. It pours from him. 
If you are born again, you've received the life giver within you. If you allow it to, it will make a fantastic difference to you. Will you allow it? What are you waiting for? It affects us in three main areas. In salvation, through Jesus we are saved. It affects us in our life. And it affects us for all eternity. And the one we're going to look at is salvation. Because unless the basics are right, nothing is right. A lot of people have been converted and they haven't got the basics right. And that's why their lives are a mess. If the foundations of a building are wrong, the whole of the rest of the house is wrong. If you lay in the floor and you don't get it straight at one corner of the room, by the time you get to the other corner, you'll have a wedge-shaped piece of cheese. The whole of the floor is going to be wrong. The mistake is, as I've touched on this morning, in the way we've given the gospel. So often it's been, come to Jesus, get blessed, get your needs met, get healed, whatever. Any person who's been saved in that way becomes a self-indulgent, materialistic Christian. What's in it for me? Well, God, I want this. And I don't know about God now, because he's not giving me what I wanted. And while we're away, Lord, please look after the house, and if you could water the garden, that would be nice. As Bob Mumford would say, he didn't say he was your shield and butler. I think that's beautiful. <laughs> Salvation is from the wrath of God. You will not any longer be judged. There is now, therefore, no condemnation or judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will not be judged. Those who really know that salvation is from God's wrath are eternally grateful. They knew they were going to hell and they deserved to go there, but Jesus has provided a way and that makes for gratitude. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus in his mercy came and saved your soul? The goodness of God sent Jesus' son to suffer in your place so you could go free. Salvation. If the foundation is wrong, you'll find the whole thing's wrong and that's why people have the problems that they do. When you were saved, astonishing changes happened in your life. Do you know the changes that occurred when you were born again? None of you are the people you used to be. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The problem is that we know ourselves so well in the old one that we still think old. We've lived so long in the old, we bring it through. We know what we can do, we know what we can't, we know our weaknesses, we know what we're like. And this, unfortunately, in many Christians' lives, has not allowed the new man to develop as he ought to. When you were born again, a brand new man came inside. Those of us who are children, when they were born, you had to get to know them, because they came with their own little personality. It's just the same. You have to get to know your new man. How he thinks, you've got to get to know him. The trouble is with most of us that the old man has swamped him. He actually came along and pushed him down. Because we've been living in the old man so much, the, the new man's a stranger to us. The new man is a fantastic person living within you and you've got to get to know who he is. There's an old barrel and there's a new barrel. I know which one I'm wanting to live with. I know the one. Do I know the other? The life that God has brought to birth within us, we need to know who this person is. There's some people in this room who knew me before I was saved, so they know the transformation that took place when I got born again. That person died. 
1 Peter 1 23 being born again not of incorruptible seed but incorrupt but not of corruptible seed but incorruptible most of us spend our time trying to kill off the new man inside but that is the part that's incorruptible as you yield to the new within he grows some of us are embarrassed at what the new man wants to do and say we're embarrassed at his passion for Jesus after all we are British stiff upper lip and all that a legal transaction has actually taken place you're in the covenant care of God you're in Christ and Christ is in God you are double wrapped you're saved, you're being saved and you will be saved for eternity again I like to sort of see it like this as if this was me, that's me, I'm in Christ and Christ is in God that applies to every one of you you are in Christ and Christ is in God you are double wrapped there ain't no way you're going to get out of there. Saved. Your past is dealt with. It was dealt with on the cross at Calvary. Once and for all. Done. All in there. Teleos. It is finished. We just need to come into what's already been done. God speaks to our potential always. You are loaded down with potential. Some of you have seen my little drawing. I've got a Snoopy asleep on the top of his kennel with his ears hanging down and the caption is, I'm loaded down with potential. God is not committed to your past. He's committed to your future. If you are living with a present past mindset, you will live out. You will miss out, sorry. What do I mean by that? I mean that your past will become your future. That's what I mean. Everything that you hated about yourself in the past will become what you hate about yourself in the future. If you live with that mindset, you can absolutely guarantee that your past is going to repeat itself because what you focus on is what keeps coming back. Constant replays. If you live a life where your expectations come from your history, you're actually in big trouble. You're going to miss out on so much. It's not too late, as Graham Cook said, to have a brain transplant. <laughs> How about not allowing your present and your future to be affected by your past? How about getting rid of the baggage and picking up your luggage? You are actually going on a trip, you know, into the future with God. When you go on holiday, you pack for what you're going to do, not for the things that have been done to you. Luggage, not baggage. The difference between baggage and luggage is this. Your baggage has always been packed by somebody else. What they said about you, what they thought about you, what they did to you. That's your baggage. That's what life's like when you live in the effects of the past. All your bags have been packed by somebody else. Someone who did not seek your highest good. Negative pronouncements and expectations about what life has taught me. What's that got to do with it? Be interested in what the Holy Spirit is telling you. Don't listen to your past. Question. Do you really want to continue living with somebody else's perception of you that is going to kill you? The difference between baggage and luggage, hurts, wounds, curses, inner vows, low self-esteem, humiliations, 
sins that have scarred us in mind and heart, abuses, anger. We feel justified in having anger, bitterness, rejection, hatred. The longer that festers in you, the more unbelief and cynicism grow. The man at the pool of Bethesda, John 5, 1-17, he's laying there impotent, blind, paralysed people, been there for years, waiting for someone to do something. What did Jesus say to him? Do you want to be healed? Very gentle, straight to the point. Do you want to be healed? You can be locked into the paralysis of carrying baggage which will lock you into a past, present lifestyle. A mindset, that's a mindset in concrete, that says nothing is ever going to change, hopelessness, nothing will work for me, and all your current experiences come from the past in a constant replay. I knew that would happen, it always does. You end up with your life as a self-fulfilling prophecy which comes out of your mouth. The cross is our deliverance from a past-present mindset and personality. Part of dying to self is crucifying the parts of ourselves that we don't really like. How would you like to do some of that? Nail it. You get to say goodbye to the things you hate about yourself and are killing you anyway. When God says, I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah 29:11, he means it. When he says, plans to give you hope and a future, he means it. When he says, plans for welfare and not calamity, he means it. He never indulges in idle words. Oh, I didn't mean that I had a plan for you. I meant everybody else. You can keep on believing that if you like, but it's a lie. It's up to you. New life for old, on offer, here, today, yours, free. You choose. Now if anything I've said has spoken to you, I would want you to um, come up and decide that you're going to live the other side of the cross. And that is going to mean coming past it. And by a prophetic declaration you're saying, Father, my life of living the wrong side of the cross is over. Because when you come to this side of the cross, you live in resurrection life. You're not living sin, a sinless life of sinless perfection. You're living in the grace and mercy and the much more care of God. And you're acknowledging the fact that everything he has done is enough. Yes, you trip up. Yes, you make mistakes. But the beating up of yourself has got to stop. It's a self-indulgence. Because who is the focus of it all? I'm not being cruel, or if I am, I'm being cruel to be kind. While you are focused on yourself, as someone said, you make a very small parcel. Focus on God you can't is limitless. Look away from your own inadequacies and look towards the fullness of what Jesus has done. And then walk into it. And by a prophetic declaration you say, I'm having this, Father. I don't feel anything. But he will see what you do this afternoon. And if you want to come up here, I will then pray a general prayer over you. Because you will have made a transaction with God. You will be partaking of what he's done. Instead of 
just looking on and thinking, well, it isn't for me. I can't do these things. What did Graham say? If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never been in bed with a mosquito, obviously. So have a little think. If you want to come up, I will pray. Thank you.